0: Hey, everybody. What's good, Classic City? Welcome to another episode of AthCast, the history episode. I'm your host, Matt Pulver. Let's get it started. Uh, so everything really, really slows down in Athens around this time in summer. The mayor and commission are on break. Uh, Folks I'm trying to talk to for this story or that, they're out of town. Folks I'm trying to get in touch with on on campus for a couple of stories, they're difficult to round up during summer. I'm out of town here and there. So all that's to say, things will be a little bit intermittent, maybe, for for a little while. But I still wanted to give you all something. So this episode of AthCast will be a reading of something I have coming out in the fall in Flagpole. This will be an exclusive for AthCast listeners. Yeah, cue the uh, the air horns. Damn, son, where'd you find this? I also might maybe sort of annotate the article as I read it, at least here and there, unless that disrupts the flow. Uh, but give a little background on my research or include little details that didn't make it into the article itself. Um, the article is about the old city stockade, which will be going up for sale soon, as as I understand it. Uh, or at least we'll, it will find some new Use it's been dormant for for quite a long time. Now I expect a long article about an old stockade sounds boring to some of y'all, maybe all of y'all. It may be boring. I'm not sure. We'll see how this goes. But please rest assured, the article is about Athens itself. We we just sort of start with the stockade, or we use the stockade as a, as a prism or whatever. This is an article that covers like more than a century of our history, um, and and it's very much history that shapes our present. It's about slavery and not the slavery that you're thinking of. This is slavery that that existed in Athens well into the 20th century. Um, In short, it's it's about way more than a single building. So uh, I really do hope you all like it. And special thanks to Hamlin Jackson for the music for this episode. Um, as well as, I believe, episode number one, I think. Uh, Hamlin performs under the name Wolfly. That's Wolfly with an I, W-O-L-F-L-I. And I really, really like everything he does. You can find him on Instagram. Uh, again, that's Wolfly, W-O-L-F-L-I. Now, seeing as this is a history episode, I finally did what I've been wanting to do for a while for the podcast, which is to do a sort of This Week in History type thing, like looking back at the various Athens newspapers to find interesting historical moments. So, in lieu of any new news, let's do a historical news roundup. July 3rd, 1908, Athens Weekly Banner, all caps headline, Anti-spitting law to be enforced. Chief McKee gives full warning that law is now in force. I'm just going to read this because this is just cold. The ordinance of the city against spitting on the sidewalks, on the floors of streetcars, or on the floors of any public building inside the city limits is now in force. We've been seeing y'all spitting and now we're serious. Chief McKee has received instructions to enforce this ordinance strictly. The people have been given full notice of this ordinance, and now it is to be enforced. Gave y'all plenty of warning to keep it in, inside your mouth. Therefore, it will stand you well in hand to not be spinning on the sidewalks, on the streetcars, or on the floors of public buildings. Chief McKee has instructed his men to make cases in mayor's court against all violators of this ordinance. On July 9th, 1920. Health Board has Cleaner Athens Plan for Future. Board authorizes doubling of city sanitation department here's the lead as littered streets and dirty alleys do not coincide with classic city ideals the Athens Board of Health is putting through improvement plans calculated to make Athens one of the cleanest cities in the south uh, what this basically means is they're they're adding five new trash wagons and uh and and this was the weird thing to me they're doubling the size of the incinerator and I had completely forgotten that like as as crazy as a landfill is like let's just put it in a hole. Back then there was like, let's just burn it. And, uh, the article says that they were burning 12 tons of trash a day and things, (laughs) the place was still so dirty. They're like, we got to at least double that. We've got to be burning 24 tons of trash every single day and, um, giving ourselves umpteen different kinds of cancer i I bet but it was in that 1920 issue of the weekly banner that i came across an ad for athens famous blood wine that's blood wine with a u (laughs) all one word b-l-u-d-w-i-n-e it's a really cool ad i'll I'll share it with folks on on social media um a, a number of catchphrases or slogans throughout the thing um the greatest soft drink in the world a smack in every sip um, which feels like a lie. Um, there was neither, as far as I can tell, there was neither caffeine nor cocaine <laughs> or coca leaves or whatever in uh, blood wine. So I don't know what smack they're talking about. Um, another slogan they have in the same ad, blood wine makes you glad you're thirsty. I, they could have workshopped these a little bit better. But what they did have is Dr. R.C. Wilson, chair of the pharmacy department, at UGA who vouches for blood wine in the ad, a big blur right in the middle of the ad, talking about his quote, intimate knowledge of blood wine. And it was then that I realized I too needed to get intimate with this beverage. So down into the blood wine rabbit hole we went. Uh, Jackson Herald out in Jackson County, july nineteen oh seven. We do not suppose that any preparation ever sold has leaped at one bound so firmly into public favor as blood wine. When a person once tries this delicious beverage, he will have none other. Because it's a, quote, health-giving tonic, a gentle stimulant and restorative for the nerves. Quote, bloodline is destined to sweep the country. We consider this blood wine manufactory one of the most important enterprises in Athens, Georgia, or the South. And it is going to do much to advertise our city abroad. So uh, a little background, blood wine is invented in 1906, really hits the streets in 1907. And that is because Georgia had become the first state in the South, which is wild, to institute prohibition in 1907, way, way before the rest of the nation. Also crazy that, that Georgia ended prohibition two years after the rest of the nation. I mean, we went like 30 years, practically, like almost 30 years under prohibition. And we've been making up for it ever since. But drinks like blood wine, you know, and Coca-Cola and the rest of them. Uh, But here in Georgia, blood wine really attempted and made made a real push to fill the market in the absence of legal alcohol. And they start having like real legit success. I mean, it starts off a little slow, but then it just starts like hauling ass. 1909, State Fair in Macon, the Bloodwine Company was awarded five diplomas of merit, which I have no idea what that means. But it was like a a pretty big deal, at least in Georgia. But then 1910, big news in the banner. The Bloodwine Company of this city has been invited to make an exhibit of this popular and delightful Southern product at the All-American Exposition at Berlin, Germany next summer. Hot dog. And by the end of 1910, there were bottlers in Camilla, Thomasville, Albany, Macon, Augusta, Jackson, all throughout the south of the state and the north of the state. One of the bottlers in in the southern part of the state, I believe in Camilla or somewhere, wanted to open a, a bottler in Cuba the following year. 1912, sales of more than 3 million bottles, with 1913 estimates doubling to more than 6 million bottles. And within no time, there were a hundred blood wine bottlers across the country, as far away as California. The Red and Black reported a few years later that there was a sign now that greeted new arrivals at the Athens train station. Of course, this is how everyone came into town. There was, you know, know, 316 wasn't a thing, right? Um, The train station is how everyone uh, of, of note, at least, entered Athens. And this big sign read Athens, the educational center of the South and the home of blood wine. But in 1921 the company was forced by the fda to change its name to Budwine. wine uh, you could say they literally took an l um but no more uh talking about blood said the fda even though it's spelled with a u um inexplicably um the problem was that doctors were prescribing a cola as a blood tonic and um uh, yeah it was just too much confusion so the fda stepped in and um yeah, so now it's Budwine in the twenties. Maybe that was the death knell because by the thirties the beverage was in decline and it was sold to the Costa Ice Cream Company. Um if you know the Costa building downtown, that's the building next to the Board of Elections. It's kind of a yellow brick building. And eventually the company was taken over by the son of Joe Costa, who was the founder, but it never took off again. They they, they tried to revive it, but it was just, you know, coke was too powerful. Um, Pepsi, RC, the rest of them, but Coke, especially here in Georgia, too powerful to allow competitors to challenge their hegemony. And wine was eventually sold uh, to Anheuser-Busch, the manufacturers of Budweiser, who were buying up everything that had Bud in the name to just take it off the market. But speaking of breweries, here's an idea. We got hella breweries here in town. Somebody like revive the beverage in some form or fashion. Maybe you could make it like a you know one of those near beers or non-alcoholic beers since it's like you know a prohibition era thing uh eh, eh. um i mean i'm sure the recipes around somewhere you could you could sort of take inspiration from the recipe you could even make like a full on beer or or malt beverage or whatever now you can't call it bud wine of course cuz you'd be sued out of existence like by friday but blood wine just bring it back just don't pretend it has anything to do with blood and you know don't run afoul of the FDA. Boom. I'm, I'm going to need a cut for that, though. And now on to our feature presentation about the city stockade. This is a dungeon out past the dogwoods, Athens' old city stockade. Athens' old city stockade, perhaps fittingly, finds itself trapped. In limbo and obscurity, the building is now, in a way, subject to the confinement it was meant to impose. Sequestered away in the farthest back corner of normal town, in a no-man's land squeezed against the loop, the stockade and its story have been largely locked away. But it is a story well worth telling. The stockade tells us a story of Athens, a story of the city's growth and modernization, a story of bitter oppression and the struggle for freedom. But unlike so many of the notable buildings in Athens that seem to insist they have a story to tell, the old stockade appears stolid and mute. Its story has not been properly told. It's been overlooked and ignored. You'd be excused for knowing nothing about the old city stockade. For the better part of the 20th century, the stockade was an Athens jail. Thus, it is a building whose story is comprised of the lives it held only briefly. For that reason, too, its story is difficult to tell. And nor does the building's appearance help its case. Appearing like something of an accident or afterthought at Boulevard's terminus, the all-white structure can strike one as almost sickly or lost, reminiscent of a beached whale left to fester, skirted in recent years by a scrum of buses and its services depot for the county fleet. In a city full of compelling buildings, structures, landmarks, and monuments, the old stockade is strikingly featureless and drab. City stockade, built entirely of concrete, boasted an ad from contractor H.L. Stewart in the Athens Daily Herald in 1914, under a photo of the austere structure. Everything concreted, both interior and exterior, excepting the doors. It's never going to win a beauty contest. The Birth of the Prison Clark County's stockades allow us a prism through which to view Athens during a period of enormous change and growth at the dawn of the 20th century. It would be a century in which Southern whites sought a return to brutal racial power through the system of laws and imprisonment. Quote, By 1900, the South's judicial system had been wholly reconfigured to make one of its primary purposes the coercion of African Americans to comply with the social customs and labor demands of whites, explains legal scholar Michelle Alexander. The century's opening saw the relatively amorphous state of post-emancipation race relations harden into the legal apparatus of an apartheid state, euphemistically called Jim Crow. A series of developments culminating in the Plessy v. Ferguson ruling in 1896 set the stage for the 20th century to be a dark one. Hey, I'm popping in here to remind y'all that Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, that's the separate but equal ruling from the Supreme Court. The ruling that that basically legalized segregation. It was was an apartheid ruling from the Supreme Court. So, as the 20th century opened, so-called law enforcement in the South was largely intended to do two things maintain a system of white control, most broadly, and to extract free labor from black detainees. Now, rarely does history offer clean, sharp delineations, but wouldn't you have it, it was on January 1st, 1900, first day of the century, that Clark County opened its first stockade, a less ambitious facility to precede the eventual city stockade. The stockade would be the site to enforce Michelle Alexander's social and labor control. The central distinction between a stockade and a jail, Athens would have both, is that convicts in the stockades were made to work. The Thirteenth Amendment had not abolished slavery entirely. Quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States, read the amendment, quote, except as a punishment for crime. As Douglas Blackman has detailed in his Pulitzer Prize-winning Slavery by Another Name, Southern whites found in this a loophole large enough to return hundreds of thousands of black Southerners to a form of slavery virtually indistinguishable from the forced, brutal labor the white South had been briefly denied after their Civil War defeat by Washington and the United States military. Countless black Southerners would be pulled into a system of slavery often more brutal than its earlier form and here in the midst of this Second Industrial Revolution, this new slavery of the 1900s would be of a more modern character. Athens was leaving the quiet, agrarian age of the 19th century and rocketing toward modernity. The first automobile appeared in Athens in 1899. The Wright brothers' first flight in 1903 was followed closely by Athens' Ben Epps, who pioneered flight in Georgia just a few years later. What we call the murmur trestle, that's the railroad trestle over the river, completed in 1883, at long last properly connected downtown Athens to the modernizing global economy, and Athens was, in 1900, becoming something almost unrecognizable from its sleepier self of the 19th century. This new Athens, and its new wealth, is what black Athenians would be both made to build, and yet excluded from sharing in. The acceleration underway in 1900 was unique in the city's history, before or since. Quote, the building boom of the 1880s and 1890s continued unabated into the early 20th century, as much of downtown assumed a character and appearance little changed today, writes Francis Thomas in her A Portrait of Historic Athens and Clark County. Much of the Athens skyline we're familiar with was built during that first decade of the 20th century. The city organized the Chamber of Commerce in 1903 to guide the unprecedented expansion. And by the end of the decade, the Athens banner would proclaim Athens, quote, one of the largest cotton markets in the world. New advances in agricultural methods had made the surrounding area rich in cotton, and Athens was the place where those regional profits were realized at the entry point of this new global supply chain. Athens soon had 12 cotton manufacturing plants, a cotton oil refinery, two oil mills, and three fertilizer plants. Athens was, by 1910, quote, handling more wagonloads of cotton than any other town in Georgia, according to the Athens banner. Money poured in. The population was quickly on its way to doubling. New banks opened to handle this new wealth. New stores and merchants multiplied. And modern electric lights soon illuminated the downtown of this pulsing hub of commerce. Roads to serfdom. What Clark County did not have were efficient, passable roads to fully integrate into this modernizing supply chain on which Athens' growing wealth was so dependent. This was a dirt road county, and this modern economy didn't run on dirt roads. County leaders saw the economic imperative in laying all weather, hard surface roads to move all of these new goods. But the going way of paving roads was endlessly arduous, with few modern machines available to crush quarried stone into gravel or to physically grade the land of the roadways. Then you had to lug the tons of crushed stone over scores of miles of road and commence this whole new process of macadamizing roads, or layering different grades of crushed stone to form a durable, hard road surface. If railroads were the arteries for this new economy, roads, quote, might be considered as the capillaries or feeders, end quote, to engage with the beating heart of capitalism, and quote, just as vital to the satisfactory working of the system, explained the Scientific American in 1908. But while the existing dirt roads of Clark County required, quote, only moderate annual expenditures, the Scientific American explained, these new macadamized roads demanded far larger outlays. They were far more expensive. Quote, the increased expenditure has been so great as to justly alarm the authorities throughout the country responsible for the roads. End quote. The era's labor victories made waged work of this sort prohibitively expensive. Quote, in these days of high paid labor and short working hours, one rarely hears in this country of macadam stone being broken by hand, reported the Scientific American. However, quote, it is true that in some of the states, prison labor may be used for this purpose. End quote. The South had by now effectively reinvented slavery, and Athens white leaders quickly sought ways to tap back into forced labor for this hardest work of road building. Quote, the working of convicts on the public roads is a new scheme in Clark County, but it is believed it will succeed, read a local paper on the eve of the stockade's opening. It was made clear that the stockade had one primary purpose, to house forced laborers, as many as could be gotten. Quote, it is not profitable to work less than twenty convicts at a time, worried the Athens banner. It was not crime that inspired this expansion of the local carceral system, but the work that could be gotten from chained men. Just as with the slavery of before, this meant buying men to drive. Simply building the stockade was an immediate boon as it meant that 53 men at a forced labor camp in Elbert County would be imported to Clark County to build roads. This experiment and re-enslavement quickly sounded just like its antebellum self among white Athenians. Quote, it is estimated that one convict in this kind of work is much more efficient than one free laborer and that more work can be gotten from the convict than from the free laborer, celebrated the Athens Banner. But Athens was not alone in this rediscovery of slave labor. More and more black men across Georgia would be swept up into this dark system on the flimsiest of charges, when there were identifiable charges at all. One might be abducted into this system for simply, quote, leaving the farm of an employer without permission, explains Douglas Blackman. So-called vagrancy became a catch-all charge to bring more and more men into this carceral slavery. Just the suspicion of a black man being involved with a white woman was enough to land him in a forced labor camp. Unspeakable Cruelties The conditions for these newly enslaved workers were brutal and only seemed to get worse. Multiple escape attempts from Clark County's first stockade were made in just the first few days, and within the first month, the county brought in five hounds to track these multiplying escapees. But despite the unconscionable brutality, plans began for a new in-town stockade to be built within the decade, opening eventually in 1912. This new city stockade and its conditions we have a lot more access to. A white detainee in the city stockade, Frank Tsai, filed charges against the city for being whipped unmercifully in 1916, and press coverage of this white man being mistreated gives us a glimpse into how conditions were that much worse for the black convicts. Frank Tsai, suffering from some manner of chronic illness, had asked for a doctor when he was made to go out and work, and the warden called for the, quote, whipping boss to break Tsai who was severely whipped while being held down. But what Sy reported more broadly about the conditions at the city stockade were worse. Sy told investigators that in just his short time in the stockade, he'd seen the warden, quote, make two Negro women fight until they had completely torn each other's clothes off and until they were unable to stand, end quote. He said he saw meat filled with vermin and men routinely whipped, The men were made to work under the threat of being beaten, which might explain a black convict dropping dead while being worked there around that same time. Later, northern journalist John Spivak would travel to Athens, this was in 1931, and find documentation of the brutality in Athens' convict labor system. In just his brief time here, Spivak discovered documentation of two deaths of black men in this neo-slavery, one from apoplexy, or sudden death, and another gravely ill man apparently worked to death. Spivak also absconded with a, quote, whipping report from just one month in Athens, which found 50 savage beatings handed out in a single month, the majority being for, quote, not working. Another seven whippings were delivered for matters as trivial as fussing and cursing. Despite the horrors of this new slavery, the hunger for labor and the need for racial control kept the system expanding. A statewide uproar in 1908 forced reforms in the state legislature of what the Atlanta Georgian, that was a newspaper back then, called the, quote, unspeakable cruelties of carceral slavery in the state. The investigatory committee formed in the legislature was told of, quote, convicts beaten to death, starved, overworked, and sold like mules, end quote. Daily reports of, quote, indescribable filth, Wretched food, inhuman driving, and utter neglect shocked readers, and the system of leasing state convicts to counties and private enterprises was eventually ended. So, while Clark County saw its avid participation in this purchase of men on a statewide auction block, they saw that come to an end. This may have only increased the need to violently conscript local men into forced labor. A 1921 headline in the Athens Banner read, Police declare war on vagrancy, stockade full. This echoes the reporting from Douglas Blackman on the use of those vagrancy charges to acquire forced laborers for either city use or for sale to businesses. Blackman describes, for instance, how, quote, After a plea for more cotton pickers in August 1932, police in Macon, Georgia, scoured the town's streets, arresting 60 black men on vagrancy charges, and immediately turning them over to a plantation owner, J.H. Stroud, end quote. The South's brazen experiment in re-enslavement would end across the region by 1945. But the conditions in the city stockade in Athens appear to have continued to deteriorate. Also, I'm going to pop in here real quick and and say that let's not pretend that uh, the stockade wasn't still mostly for black men. It's just that using them as slaves was now off limits. Within a few decades, the stockade would be one of the worst jails in the state. Through the mid-century, the conditions had degraded so much in Clark County's jails that a federal lawsuit was eventually brought in the early 70s. A federal judge would tour the county jail and deem the conditions, quote, awful. But while the awful county jail merely failed an inspection, the city stockade was deemed, quote, unfit for occupation by the same inspectors. A local reporter would remark that as bad as the county jail is, quote, it is a virtual paradise compared to the city stockade. Only 4% of jails across the state received as abysmal a grade as the city stockade. The Disinherited Children of God Despite its hellish conditions, the city stockade would be where white Athens leaders chose to send protesters against segregation, many of them children, in the early 1960s. Once again, the stockade would serve as a site of overt racial control. Dozens of Athens' children and a number of older protesters would be dragged by white police to be detained at the stockade for the crime of asking to be treated as a human and a citizen. There was a vibrant and inspired civil rights movement in Athens at the time. The movement that had emerged in places like Birmingham, Atlanta, Little Rock, and Greensboro, North Carolina, sparked the same passionate push for equality in Athens. The racist system constructed in Athens in the early century had by now cemented into a deeply unequal apartheid state. Black Athenians were excluded from political, economic, and social power. Black children were barred from the better-funded white schools. Black adults and children alike were refused service at lunch counters and other white businesses. And white abuses, big and small, were permitted as though sanctioned by God. In the minds of many whites, they were. Thus, when young black Athenians began challenging the system, white Athens responded the way it always had, violence, both legal and extralegal. While it's perhaps easier to recognize the extralegal violence of groups like the Ku Klux Klan as such, the latent and active violence of state power was far more pervasive and effective in maintaining the white supremacist order. While the Klan boasted a dues-paying membership of almost 400 In the mid-century in Athens, complete with a headquarters above the former Grit location, it was the so-called legitimate power of the police and imprisonment that most sustained the apartheid arrangement. Hattie Whitehead recalls herself and the other Athens children protesting against segregation being harshly rounded up by the busload by white police and deposited at the stockade. She and other children, Whitehead was 14 at the time, would gather at Ebenezer West to train with faith leaders in nonviolent tactics and then march to segregated establishments for their protest actions. And without fail, armed white police would deploy against the peaceful children. The children, as well as their adult comrades, understood that police deployment meant that violence was in play. The white power structure maintained a monopoly on so called legitimate violence, and the police was the tip of that spear. Homer Wilson and his family understood that threat well enough, and Wilson, given to a young man's quick temper, was kept from the front lines due to the police violence that could result from a lapse in strict nonviolent strategy. In her book, Giving Voice to Town, Whitehead describes the vile gauntlet White Athens designed for her and the other children, asking for basic fairness. Arriving downtown to a segregated establishment, the children would find that, quote, both edges of the sidewalk would be lined with white men and women shouting the N-word mixed with profanity, and women used their purses as weapons hitting us as we walked by, end quote. At times, the Klan itself would arrive and cast a deeper danger over the scene. And always waiting for the children was the ultimate threat possessed by the white power structure, the violence represented by the police. Once white Athens deployed their police, the dehumanization was complete. The protesters reduced to mere disobedient bodies under the control of white men with guns. Whitehead and her comrades' determination stood defiant in the face of white police power. Quote, if we got locked up that night, we went back the next day, and the next day, and the next day, she says. You went back, she says. Indeed, they would continue to fight and Whitehead and the other protesters helped bring the dawn. Throughout the 60s, incremental civil rights victories would dismantle much of the overt apartheid that barred black Athenians from opportunities in education, transportation, commerce, and politics. And the stockade had perhaps finally lost its power as the oppressor's tool. It had been allowed to fall into a ramshackle state, infested and grimy and, by all accounts, nightmarish inside. But the deeper stain was from its use. More macabre than its physical state was its history. Whatever new paint may lie in store for the building, only a redemptive use would wipe clean this taint. The New Jim Crow The derelict stockade would finally be decommissioned in 1978 in anticipation of a new, much larger jail. If the stockade opened at the dawn of the 20th century to commence a new system of white oppression in the South, its closure, too, signaled a new beginning in the carceral control of black Americans. Both the stockade and its successor jail opened almost precisely at the moment of their need to the powers that be. This new jail, would open just weeks after President Ronald Reagan's election in 1980. Reagan would inaugurate a turn toward mass incarceration and the intensification of policing. Reagan and his conservative, increasingly Southern, coalition would code criminality in terms of race. The Southern scheme of incarceration as a mode of social control would infuse the national political posture under Reagan, and the country's prison population would almost double during his eight years with black Americans disproportionately locked up and targeted by police. The course steered by the president would eventually give the country the ignominious distinction of having more of its citizens locked up than any country on earth. For the better part of a century, the stockade had served its purpose as a tool of social and racial control. But America's insatiable thirst for caging its citizens, especially black Americans, finally rendered the facility inadequate to the new scale of incarceration. Decades of inhumane conditions between its walls had not shuttered the stockade. The barbaric treatment of its inmates had not caused its closure. The vermin and pestilential rot inside had not put an end to the whites' dungeon. No, it was finally closed because it was no longer big enough to be of assistance in the new world of mass incarceration that was fast approaching.